I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. This is Live Mike with Lee Lonsberry. Lee Lonsberry. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. Huge news in the world of coronavirus eradication. Hopefully we someday will be able to boast of that. Vaccines uh, making their way around the country today after that emergency use authorization handed down by the FDA just this past Friday. Uh, shamelessly, let me invite you to make your way over to my Facebook page. Lee Lonsberry, you'll see the Live Mic logo up in the corner. On my page here today, I have posted that letter. Now, it's long. It's nine pages long. A lot of footnotes. It walks through the the chemical makeup of the vaccine, some of it might put you to sleep. But in its essence, it is a historical document. And today will be one of those dates that we remember forever. The day the vaccine started making its way into the arms of Americans. And that document, the one you can read in its entirety, and I invite you to do so on my Facebook page right now, is the letter that made it all possible. Uh, you, the process is important. Making sure that things happen in their proper order, uh, that that's very important. And proper order and process come into play uh, in this next story we will cover here. And that is that today is the date that electors, those members of the Electoral College throughout the country, are casting their votes for the president. You know, you and I, uh, yeah, sure, we vote for the president, but like kind of, not directly. We are voting for electors. Each respective state legislature has a system set up to determine the votes cast by uh, the electors. We can get into uh, like faithless versus non-faithless electorals uh, another day. The Supreme Court's been pretty clear on that. Anyway, uh, it is the electors who today at the respective state capitals around the country are casting their ballots. And if you if you were a fan of following the election tallies as they trickled in uh, after this past uh, election day. Here's another opportunity for you. Uh, as the day has gone on, uh, various states throughout the country have submitted their ballots. And how that works, it's kind of interesting. Uh, and in fact, I invite you to stick around. After the news break at the bottom of the hour, we'll be joined by Greg Hughes, former Speaker of the Utah House. He himself is an elector and is today himself involved in this process we're discussing here right now. The way it works is the elector, the electors report to the state capitol and they have a they have a piece of paper, a pair of them, as a matter of fact, on each. They cast a vote for the president and the vice president. Those 
votes are then paired with a, a document, uh, which is filled out by the governor. And then a number of copies are sent via registered mail to various uh, recipients around the, the country. One being the district judge over the district uh, where... Uh, you know, the, the, the capital is, uh, the state capital. And then, uh, a number of copies of these documents are sent, uh, to Washington, D.C., to the National Archives and to other folks out there. I, I believe the Secretary of State uh, is on the receiving end of one set of copies. And most importantly, the President of the Senate or the Vice President of the United States receives that document or those documents rather. There is then a gathering in Washington, D.C., a joint gathering of the House and the Senate. And on that day, something absolutely fascinating takes place. This is going to happen at 1 p.m. on January 6th. This is the official count by Congress of these ballots. And a determination will be made. And a vote will be cast. And that is the moment, January 6th, with the consent of both chambers of Congress, the House and the Senate, that the next president is officially determined. The official determination happens then. The process is complete at that point. The vice president then declares a winner. But, but there are there are things that could happen in that setting that could disrupt the process. Now, the disruption can happen. And honestly, there are some members of Congress who have indicated a desire to disrupt the process. But, uh, and I'll explain in a moment, the highest of likelihoods is, uh, even in the face of all possible disruption, a decision will ultimately be made to uh, accept the results. And we know those results to be uh, in the favor of President-elect Joe Biden. Here's what could happen. Here's what could happen in that setting. If there is an objection raised, after, again, on January 6th, when both, cha- when both the House and the Senate get together in joint session and the votes are tallied, if an objection is raised... Say someone in the House uh, raises their hand and says, I would like to object to uh, these votes, and they do so you know, for whatever reason. What needs to happen at, at that moment is for an identical objection to be raised by a single member of the opposite chamber. So if we see any objections in the House for anything to happen, for for actual break from process to to transpire, someone on the Senate side needs to agree with that objection. Now, if that happens, and I I know this is boring stuff, but I'm telling you, the process is fascinating. The, The process is so important. If there is a scenario in which on January 6th, members of the House and Senate will gather together, there is an objection by a member of the House and a member of the Senate, what happens then is both chambers they go their separate ways and for two hours they debate they debate the objection and then a vote is taken by each chamber and there must be a sustaining vote for the challenge to be accepted 
Okay, so let's think about what that means. If uh, let's say Republicans decide they want to challenge the tabulation of these votes on that day, on January 6th at 1 p.m. during the joint session, if uh, a Republican member of the House raises their hand and says, I object, someone on the Senate side, a Republican raises their hand and says, I agree with that objection and I object uh, on equal terms. They go their separate ways in the Senate. There's a possibility, right, because it only takes a majority to uphold this objection. On the Senate side, if the senators agree, or rather all the Republican senators agree, regardless of what happens in Georgia, it's possible for uh, for the objection to be upheld in the Senate. But we know, we know that on the House side, uh, Democrats control the whole deal. And, uh, you know, even though the margins are narrowed, certainly after this uh, most recent election, there's no way that that vote gets uh, upheld, or rather that objection gets sustained by the body. And then, when when all are back together, a vote is cast, and uh, the the highest likelihoods is that vote goes the way of certifying the results, and that ultimately will determine the next president of the United States. We're going to be watching, though, on that day, because I believe that we're going to see a good deal of pageantry. And it may be one or more objections that are raised. And one or more of those objections may enjoy support in both the House and the Senate. And each one of those objections is entitled to two hours. So that January 6th joint session where the results of the election provided by the Electoral College certified by Congress, it it may drag on a while. It may drag on a little while. But it'll get sorted. You might ask yourself, Lee, why the heck have you just bored us for the past, what has it been, uh, seven minutes talking about these procedures? Okay, we can, on the day of, we can tune in. Well, the reason I share them with you is to, well, remind myself and you that while, yes, things do feel incredibly divided right now, it feels like we are knocking on the door of uh, you know division unlike we have seen at any time in history well except maybe during the civil war you might have noticed uh, some of the comments made by uh, say the republican party of texas following the decision by the supreme court on friday not to hear the case brought by the attorney general of that state the party leaders in texas said they, they talked in terms of secession and rebelling and that those states that were in agreement when it came to the claims made by Texas in that attempted lawsuit, that maybe those states should band together. Those are scary words. Those are scary ideas and it's scary innuendo. But there is a process in place that has been in place for now centuries. And that process, regardless of the outcome, regardless of your politics, regardless of who you support right now, that process is the one thing that not only holds us together and keeps this government standing and ensures safe, continuous government, a continuity of government. But it also gives us uh, reason to have faith in our nation and the way it is run and to know that this is merely a blip in our history and that we will endure, and that a, uh, I believe, divinely inspired process is in place to help ensure that. Some of the details get boring, some of it gets complicated, but it has kept this ship sailing for centuries now, and I believe it will do so for a long time to come.
A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Live Mike with Lee Lonsberry from Utah's Capitol Hill to your schools, Texas, and all the breaking news. Hear it on Live Mike with Lee Lonsberry on KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. Today is the day electors around this great nation cast their vote as members of the Electoral College. They are gathering in their respective state capitals throughout this country. They are filling out their vote slips, submitting them, and ultimately via registered mail, I recently learned, all of them via registered mail will be sent to their respective destinations, uh, including President of the Senate. That is Vice President of the United States, where the Congress in a joint session will take up its important work of certifying the results of the Electoral College vote on January 6th at 1 p.m., that is when uh, these results will uh, become final. And so let's take it back here to Utah. And joining me on the line to talk a bit about this process I've explained to you is so important is Greg Hughes, former Speaker of the Utah House and an elector here uh, in the great state of Utah. Mr. Hughes, sir, how are you? Good. How are you, Lee? I'm well. I'm grateful to you for being on the line with us. Uh, you and your fellow electors have done your electoral college work. You have fulfilled the uh, responsibility you have carried since becoming selected as an elector. What have you done here today? So it's uh, I've never been an elector uh, before, but I've, I'm aware of the process. I've watched it. Uh, it's a moment in history, our Constitution. Uh, I think it's, uh, as you see, our presidential elections play out. It's a way... It's a, it's, I think it's a, an incredible way to make sure that every state has its voice and its, uh, and its votes cast and considered, uh, you know, in, in, in a meaningful way through the Electoral College. And so uh, Utah has six, four members of Congress and then two U.S. senators. So each state has the total number of co- members of Congress and senators uh, in their state. And that's how you get to your elector pool. So we have six, and we went to the state capitol today, and we began the ceremony at noon. Uh, it's not a long one. There were a couple of forms, to, a couple of ballots you have to uh, fill out. It is not a secret ballot. <laughs> yeah. You uh, not only uh, are you a, are you there to represent uh, the person of the party that elected you. So our state convention elected or uh, voted for electors. If it were the case that the the uh, candidate from our Republican Party won, and Donald Trump, President Trump, did win in in Utah. Uh, then you are then you are assigned to vote that way, and it's not. There's remember there was the six in 2016 the discussion of the faithless electors. Right. Well, we have in statute uh, a provision where if someone were to appear from that, you know, that was to represent their party that won the state's popular vote, and they wanted to vote a different way, then the electors that were present could uh, elect a new person to reflect the will of the people here in the state of Utah. So little provision that wasn't applied. No one, there was, there were no faithless electors in the room. And so we voted for on the ballot. We voted uh, for president Trump and then signed at the bottom. And then we voted for uh, vice president Pence and signed at the bottom. And then there was a collective 
uh, signature sheet that we signed, and that will go into our national archives. And I learned recently that from now on, you'll be able to go. There's a link in the national archives that you can go and see the people that have voted as electors in our state for each uh, presidential candidate uh, that the state's popular vote selected. So it's 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 historic. It's a historic moment, and it was an honor to be a part of that today. Outstanding. Uh, wh- who who decides they would like to become an elector? What's the process like? Uh, you, you mentioned it was at state convention. The vote is cast and the decision is made there. But talk to me more about the process of becoming an elector. Yeah, it's a, it's a great uh, it's a great question, and it's it's not. Uh, I don't think it's widely known. Uh, the way we do it in the state of Utah is that each party uh, that would that would have a a, a candidate to consider for president of the United States on the ballot, that respective party uh, would have electors that, that would be attached to their candidacy. So uh, there was a, a slate of electors. If uh, president or uh, Joe Biden would have won or would have won Utah, uh, there were a slate of Democrat electors uh, that were voted. I, I would presume like the Republican convention uh, were were voted on in their state convention. And that's how you do it. I put my name forward. I, I put it on a, a ballot to be considered by the state delegates. I had not done it before, uh, as well as uh, Sean Reyes. Now, our attorney general, it was, uh, this is 2020. So in keeping with the uh, times, uh, he, uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to be saying, but he was uh, in COVID protocol and was unable to make or attend uh, today's ceremony. So Mia Love was the closest, former Congresswoman Mia Love was the closest in terms of votes after the six. So she came in seventh. So she was, she came today and filled in in that place. But those are, uh, those are voted on by our state delegates in the, in the state convention, uh, this last in 2020 here. And, uh, that's how you, ch- that's how they choose their electors. And so because president Trump won the Republican slate of electors, uh, came today to cast their vote. Absolutely fascinating. I, I had no idea. I presumed that uh, Attorney General Reyes w- w- was there, but uh, for whatever reason, unable to participate. And so it uh, it fell to the seventh most vote getter, uh, and that was Mia Love to to cast. And yes. so it'll be Mia Love's uh, name, as you mentioned, which will endure in the National Archives and have cast uh, cast one of Utah's six electoral college votes for uh, President Trump and Vice President Pence. Fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, let me ask you this much. We, th- what you have participated in is an in- is an intense and very important part of the process. It is something that has happened uh, so many times in history. Every uh, time there is a presidential election, there are electors who are casting votes just like you. Uh, th- this process uh, is integral to the election of a president. But in this most recent uh, election, we have heard calls from, uh, you, you know, from, from Main Street, from Wall Street, from the academic halls. Uh, many, many are saying that it is an antiquated and outdated process, one that we should reconsider. Uh, d- does the Electoral College have a place in, in the future of America? It absolutely does. And look, I've, I've entertained this notion. I've looked at it as a policymaker. Uh, there are some interesting points brought up about uh about a popular vote versus the electoral college, sometimes you see some of the national issues uh, really do center around some of those early, like early states for the uh, or the caucuses, like Iowa. There's a lot of corn subsidies for fuel, or or different uh, policy, federal policies that wrap around that. Or you'll have Medicaid for all or Medicare for all. Uh, that's a Florida issue. Some people look at the electoral college making Florida such an important electoral college vote. 
uh, rubber subsidies for tires in industries in states like Ohio. So there's been an argument that the Electoral College may uh, reflect specific states' issues at the expense of other states. However, uh, in staring at this, what I think you would ultimately get in a just a raw national popular vote, which the, the popular vote typically tracks the Electoral College. It's not every single time, but it's close. Uh, but what you get in the Electoral College is it's some degree of safeguards against Los Angeles and New York City deciding every president from this day forward or whatever those major metropolitan uh, cities would be, less than a, a half dozen, uh, that could really drive elections from here going forward as you see such a concentration of population. We have, I think, Los Angeles County, uh, Lee, uh, as, a, as a population is larger than many states. And and so that's a that's disconcerting when you look at how the population is represented in our country. And so I think every state where we're, you know, this is so, these are sovereign states, 50 states that came together in a union. And uh, you I think you it would be well, it'd be unconstitutional, but I think it would be a, a, a terrible loss to lose the specific voice and vote of our of, of every state in the union. I think it's an important provision. I, uh, I agree with you there, and I think that uh, you know coming to that realization, or at least holding that view, is very dependent on doing homework and study and looking at the uh, the distribution of you know where folks live here in this great country. As you mentioned, the high concentrations in some of the larger cities uh, could throw things out of whack in terms of representation. And you know, while yeah. while folks may look at uh, you know popular vote and say that ought to be it, that's the will of the country. Uh, the, it is more complicated than. That. Uh, and you've explained it, it, it well. really is, and and so uh, so I do think it's a I think it's an incredibly uh, representative process, you know, to have the electoral college. But here's an interesting: if people didn't want it, uh, every state uh, by statute gets to decide how those electors uh, will represent will vote for president. So you could have it be that the le- a, a, a state's legislature decides we want. This was actually an example that was sent on a social media thread that was uh, sent to me that I thought was interesting and true. Uh, you could uh, you could assign Utah's six electors to the person who eats the most ice cream in 30 minutes. <laughs> you could do it. It would yeah. be constitutional. The legislature could say that's how. We don't want to do it by our, our state's popular vote. The legislature decides what those what the conditions are to qualify to earn to get the votes of those electors. So if you wanted a national popular vote, and there's a movement that's going on, and this is where these issues were given to me, and I really did study this closely, you could have an interstate interstate compacts where legislatures decide or agree that they would cast their ballots for the candidate that receives the, pot, the most votes nationally in a popular vote. And so even through the Electoral College, if you wanted it to be just the raw national popular vote, the Electoral College, the way that process is laid out, and the power it gives states and their legislatures, you could do it that way if those legislative bodies decided that's how they want to do it. And isn't that great that every state would have its own, it would be the gatekeeper. It would decide whether it wants to uh, conduct, commit its electors that way. Yeah. And uh, so it's a, it's an incredible process. It's, uh, it's why, you know, I, I do think our constitution is, is an incredible uh, document and it's content. Look, these are, we're not in rare air. We're not in times, even though this is 2020 and times are, uh, feel a bit crazy. We've had, uh, all the issues that I think the electoral college contemplates. And even if the electoral college's votes, uh, fail to 
convey the the will of the people or the will of those states that send their votes. Uh, we have had moments, and I think three times, where the president was uh, ultimately decided by the House of Representatives, U.S. House of Representatives, that has a vote per state, uh, each delegation. So, and that's happened. Right. Even you know, it sounds crazy, but it's uh, that's even happened in our state, our US, our country's history. So, uh, again, uh, all these all these issues have been have been uh, contemplated, and the Constitution is an incredible document. It's the worst. It is the worst form of government known to man except for all the rest. (laughs) Yeah. You just need to know that. Okay? That's a good line. Uh, listen, <laughs> former Speaker of the Utah House, Greg Hughes, and this year uh, serving as elector, he and five others uh, casting their votes today uh, in the Electoral College. Greg Hughes, thank you for your time. Thanks for your work. Hey, thank you. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.